Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. In the first, Ben Tarnoff and Maura Weigel will talk about their book, Voices from the Valley, a collection of interviews with tech workers. And then Paul Street will look at the damaging legacy of Barack Obama, who bears no small responsibility for Donald Trump. First, tech workers, or more precisely, workers in tech. Most civilians don't have much of a sense of what goes on inside Silicon Valley firms, big or small. Ben Tarnoff and Maura Weigel are out with a book of interviews with workers who can talk about it from the inside. And not just coders, but also a cook and a massage therapist. Tarnoff and Weigel are co-founders of Logic Magazine, and their book is called Voices from the Valley. Tech workers talk about what they do and how they do it. Just out from Forrest, Rouse, and Giroux. Ben Tarnoff and Maura Weigel. Before we start uh, talking about the content of the book, how do you suppose the pandemic and remote work have changed the worlds that these folks are talking about? I think quite dramatically. It was funny because, you know, the weekend before the book came out, we sort of like were taking a walk and saying, what is it? You know, how do we feel about this book now, now that it's out in the world in this other moment? And it's, you know, it feels like a missive from a remote world, a faraway world in a certain way. The two big things that jumped to mind is that it's, you know, this class division or this cleavage There's among more white collar and more high paid tech workers and contract or lower paid tech workers has been dramatized, exacerbated by the fact that some folks can can work remotely and some can't as easily. On the other hand, there's a good chance that long-term remote work will put certain kinds of pressure on the full-time employees and technical employees as well, uh, make their jobs kind of precarious in, in new ways. So it's dispersed everyone in space, which is an obstacle to organizing and solidarity in some senses, uh, but then also creates new new pressures, even on higher level or more privileged workers. Ben, does that sound roughly accurate? Yeah, I, I think as Maura said, the pandemic is deepening many of these divisions that cut across the class structure of the tech industry. A janitor, a security guard, shuttle bus driver, a cook at Google is being affected by this crisis in a very different way than a software engineer or a product designer at Google. At the moment, fortunately, many of those former folks, the subcontracted service workers, have continued to get paid, although it's unclear how long that will continue because, of course, as this crisis continues, you know their jobs uh, are very much in doubt, whereas there's really nothing keeping folks like software engineers from working from home indefinitely. However, what we are starting to see is as those working from home, white collar workers leave expensive metropolitan real estate markets like San Francisco uh, for places like Reno, Nevada, their compensation is starting to get adjusted downwards. That will be another long-term impact of possibly permanent remote work force for white-collar workers is uh, compensation coming down. Back in the old days, we used to hear a lot, partisans, the open office and you know, the campus structure for, for a lot of Silicon Valley enterprises, that the, the chance meetings in the hallway were actually very fruitful, that a lot of ideas developed by people just meeting each other and talking. Now we're all about, uh, we don't really need the office anymore. We can just remote work from Reno and uh, at, at cheaper rates of pay. What's the story here? I mean, are they losing something by not being together anymore? That's a great question, Doug, because the proposition that many of these big tech companies have put forward by building these large campuses in Silicon Valley where all of their workers would come together was precisely that through that co-location, new kinds of creativity, new kinds of collaboration could be unlocked. It's a very expensive proposition to test out in practice, right? Because these are very elaborate, very lavish, in many cases, campuses. But this is something that I think has remained strongly felt in the leadership layers of the industry. However, through the pandemic, they're forced to try something else. 
So far, it seems that while there are reports that suggest that certain types of productivity are coming down, particularly around uh, collaboration and kind of cross-team, cross-product collaboration, I think in general, they're still getting a lot of work out of these white-collar workers. And particularly when you think of the cost savings that might be involved in reducing compensation to be more in line with the labor markets where many of these folks are moving to, like Reno or Sacramento, then I think it really could be a good economic value for these companies. Financial Times columnist said uh, a few weeks ago that uh, all these companies that are working on remote now are just working on the social capital that developed over the years of working together, and they're going to run that down eventually. So I guess we'll find out whether she had a point and whether they're actually just running on fumes. You interviewed a, um, a massage therapist, which was, was a fun interview uh, and depressing, but these people are enormously stressed. What do you suppose working remotely is doing to their stress levels? From what I hear anecdotally, working remotely is increasing many people's stress levels. Uh, I think I've heard often that the crush of meetings, the crush of Zoom meetings, uh, people in the tech industry, like in many industries, um, Sorry, I just had to stop myself from being a Tubin joke. Uh, <laughs> <of> people, <laughs> that, that people find sort of the wall-to-wall Zoom meeting stressful. And I think also uh, with the introduction of, it's not even the introduction of new workplace management tools, because internal platforms like Facebook Workplace existed before the pandemic. But there's a way in which now that, that one's being managed by that interface at home, as well as at work, particularly <laughs> if one still lives in a, in a small San Francisco apartment, people feel like the screen's never off, that there's sort of no outside of work, which I think the campus, tech campus culture fostered that sense to an extent. But now that, that work and home life are so blurred, many people... Yeah, a line I've heard is that the screens are never off. Um, and forget it if you have kids or other kinds of caring responsibilities. Mark said something like, the worker feels himself only when at home. But <laughs> we're denied that now. The home is being transformed into the workplace in very obvious ways. And as Maura mentioned, there is this stress of feeling like you're on call 24 hours a day. But then also all of the things at home are still there, right? Like care responsibilities, um, the labor of, of the household, maintaining the home, paying for all of these expenses like your internet bill or your power bill or all of these things that, that would have been covered in part by having to go into an office. The mental health dimension here is also really important to emphasize. I mean, we are talking about a relatively privileged layer of workers. These are the folks who can work from home and that in this economy, the kind of brutality of American capitalism, that is an incredible privilege. However, there are pretty serious mental health costs to this style of living, the style of working that will only intensify as the pandemic continues. You're old by 35, right? It's like being a professional athlete. Precisely. And I think this is... A, Are you calling you know, us old, Doug? <laughs> <laughs> well, well no, right. <laughs> I'm really old compared to you. Uh, but you know what I mean. Uh, that uh, like, I think Silicon Valley throws you in the trash heap after 35 or so. I'm, not, I'm just picking a number out of the air, but you know what I mean. Well, I think it's interesting to reflect on how the pandemic interacts and intensifies with ageism in the industry. Because one of the ways this ageism manifests is the expectation that people do not have care responsibilities at home. Now, not all firms make that assumption. Of course, there is variation and there are firms that make allowances for that sort of thing. But as you might expect, you know, someone who is kind of single, unattached, without any of these care responsibilities would make for a better remote worker under these circumstances. However, again, bringing back the mental health issue, that individual kind of working in total isolation is likely to, to undergo some difficulties when it comes to mental health as well. So I'm not sure how far that model can be pushed uh, without hitting a breaking point. Now let's talk about some of the interviews specifically. I interviewed a guy uh, who had been with Google for some time, and he was describing a transformation that happened to that company from its early do-no-evil days to its more recent quite evil-doing days. What happened to Google over the decades? What you're talking about, Doug, the way that interviewee talks about these changes in sort of management structure and even office layout in Google uh, is one of my favorite moments in the book, because I think part of the project of Voices from the Valley of trying to get these voices uh, in general is to try to 
like figure out how the material conditions at these companies actually shape these larger narratives that we have about them. And, and that Googler talks or former Googler talks about, uh, you know, there's this big story that's been in the media for a couple of years now about the Google culture wars. Uh, and they tie it really concretely, I think, to these changes in the company and the management style. I think the big things that stood out to me in that interview were at least two or three. One was this sense that Google, which had started out on a more academic model, you know, it started by academics, has a sort of open plan uh, lab, everyone can work on one another's projects uh, kind of feel, got a much stricter and more hierarchical management style over time. Another thing which the interviewee described as related to, to that first thing uh, was that lines of communication that had previously served as checks or useful opportunities for feedback and modification on potentially problematic policies or design decisions got shut down as management got more hierarchical. Uh, and then I think the third thing, which is really fascinating to me, is sort of a theme of another book in the series by Tim Huang, Subprime Attention Crisis. But another thing is this open question of, you know, will Google be able to print infinite money from search forever? Uh, is this business model of of internet ads being a sort of infinite revenue source that can support all other kinds of experiments. Will that go on forever? Or does the company need to diversify into, into other lines like creating software for the Department of Defense, uh, which might be more internal, uh, more controversial internally? And I think uh, what's most fascinating to me about that interview is how it grounds these quote unquote culture wars at Google or these larger debates about the ideology of the tech industry a clash that I've written about elsewhere between the sort of liberal libertarian understanding of what technology is for and this more tech nationalist understanding that we see around figures like Peter Thiel or with Amazon's bids for military business and so on, that that's really grounded uh, in questions about the business model of the company uh, and, and the organization of the company as much as these sort of wishy-washy philosophical I shouldn't say wishy-washy. I respect philosophy deeply, but these, you know, it's not just people's ideas about technology. It's really grounded in the, in these material changes. Yeah. I would amplify this point that Moore is making, which is that the internal turmoil within Google has at this point been pretty widely reported by the mainstream media and often with excellent reporting, but it's often represented as a quote unquote culture war. And as Maura mentioned, that I think really diverts attention from the fact that the underlying business models and specifically the transformation of the business model at a place like Google has a lot to do with how these various struggles, ideological struggles, labor struggles have emerged within the company. And I, I know this won't be a surprise to, to you, Doug, or hopefully to our good historical materialist listeners, but you know how these firms make money, the particular mechanics of, of the profit process in these firms is a really important thing to pay attention to when it comes to the types of struggles that emerge in these workplaces. Well, it's funny, you know, some firms like Google, Apple make tons of money, and then, but an awful lot of Silicon Valley is not making any, you know, like the startups are, you know, Uber's been around for over 10 years, it's not making any money, but there are many others like that, all these unicorns who'd been showered with venture cash, but still couldn't turn a profit. It's a funny world uh, where um, you have this very, very profitable enterprise like Google, and then, you know, all these others that are just not making any money at all. It's... Uh, it's hard to say what the material basis of that is. And other business models don't necessarily scale as well as online ads, I think, is what is what you're getting at, Doug, that there's a, you know, there's a way in which, and partly this is the very successful kind of hype machine of Silicon Valley itself, but we tend to talk about these companies that, you know, they're all tech companies, they're all platforms, um, although, you know, platform is a very ideological word, I think we should approach with suspicion mostly. And yeah, what about that word? I mean, you hear that word a lot. What ideological work does platform do? Platform is a metaphor that comes out of, of the tech companies in the 2000 aughts. Uh, it's used, you know, it has a couple of different meanings. One meaning of platform is that it's a, a technical meaning is that it's an environment for other developers to develop technical tools in. But I think that this metaphorical sense it gives us that, you know, it's simply a thing on which other people can stand and say whatever they want, simply an intermediary site that other actors can use however they want, has done a lot of work uh, in getting the public to buy into 
the idea that these very large companies are not at all responsible for for how people transact or communicate or uh, interact through them and has allowed them precisely to reach the the global scale that they have. Um, I won't bore everyone by getting into CDA 230, uh, but, you know, we're having a bunch of conversations about that now. I'd say the problem with the, the term platform is illustrates a broader problem with how we think about the tech industry, which is that we're always playing on their terrain. And the tech industry furnishes us with the language, the metaphors, the ways of thinking that are then taken for granted even by the industry's harshest critics. This is often a major problem in contemporary tech critique where the marketing claims of a company like Google are actually taken as fact by many of its critics and then kind of they advance their critique on that basis. And that's actually not a very accurate picture of how these companies really work or what the technology really does. Our hope with this book is to contribute in a small way to puncturing some of that mystification. And one of those mystifications at work in the term platform, as Maura was alluding to, is that platforms are these completely automated mechanisms that operate without the invention of intervention of people or possibly with the intervention of very few people. And the hope with this book is to show you, as we say in the introduction, that actually platforms are made of people. And there are all of these people whose labor goes into composing and maintaining these platforms that you never see and that you never hear about. That was the voice of Ben Tarnoff, editor along with Maura Weigel, whom we're also hearing from, of Voices from the Valley, just out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. These platforms take the commodity fetish to a new level, really. When you use one on your phone, it feels like it's all automatic. There's no human beings involved at all. Not even things involved. You don't even know that there's vast physical infrastructure that makes it possible. It it's, leads to this very disembodied consciousness when you um, use these apps. Well, they certainly have every interest in making us feel that way, right? Um, and yet, and I'm sure, you know, I'm just being polemical. I'm sure, Doug, you and many of your listeners know this. But of course, many humans are involved not only in gathering and cleaning the data and writing the algorithms, but also in moderating content, you know, so we can, I, I like to remind students or others I talk to about this to think of the physicality of traumatized content moderation workers in the Philippines uh, or, you know, or the the environmental impact of these massive data centers. You know, it's, it's important, I think, to bring the airiness or ethereal nature of these metaphors back down to earth. Well, in a couple of your interviews, I mentioned the massage therapist, but also the cook. I mean, there are people doing very traditional kinds of manual labor within these high-tech environments. That's right. And a lot of manual labor of that kind is required for these companies to run, which, again, is something we're not often learning about because this is not part of the public narrative of Silicon Valley. But, you know, there are a lot of shuttle buses that have to get driven. There are a lot of meals that have to get made uh, and so on. And this labor is absolutely essential to, to these companies. You know, without it, they, they can't be as profitable as they are. However, as we explore in the book, the folks who are doing this work tend to be fairly low wage workers, you know, despite working for some of the biggest companies in the world and despite living in one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. Another interview that I found very intriguing was the one about artificial intelligence, data science, whatever label you want to attach to it. I mean, I've been following this stuff since the 1980s, and it's always seemed like AI was on the verge of really paying off, and then that the data that payoff keeps getting postponed. Um, so this, the, the, your interviewee was rather skeptical about this world. Oh, he said, you know, it's going to do something over the longer term, but all these magical claims are rather overdone. What does he tell us about uh, the magic of the robots taking over and the cars driving themselves? I think that conversation is a useful corrective to a lot of the AI hype that we get in the mainstream conversation. What's interesting, however, about that conversation and, and what I enjoyed about it so much is that the data scientist tries to thread the needle here between a kind of super utopian, kind of excessively optimistic and boosterish view of what AI is and what its potential is, and on the other hand, an excessively dystopian or kind of pessimistic that AI essentially represents no advance over what existed before. The kind of middle ground that he reaches, although he is quite skeptical, as you mentioned, of, of a lot of contemporary developments, is that on the one hand, through a handful of 
advances that have taken place, you know, starting, let's say, in the early 2000s that really have to do with machine learning, a particular form of artificial intelligence. There are a lot of things that we can do now that we couldn't have done before. Object recognition, uh, computer vision, uh, natural language processing. These are fields that have made very substantial progress in recent years. However, we're getting better at performing very specific tasks, like I hand a computer a photograph and you tell me whether it has a cat in it. Although every time we fill out a capture, we're helping the industry learn that, right? Precisely. And that's a good point, right? Because as we were mentioning before, it takes a ton of human labor for artificial intelligence to work. So we're not taking the human out of the equation. These are labor-intensive forms of technology. But they are quite impressive, at least in their particular specific applications. However, it's a very large leap to go from saying whether there's a cat in a photograph to building something like a brain, a mind, a consciousness. And I think what you often hear in the mainstream discourse is a kind of elision between those two. There's really no meaningful evidence that we are going to build a path from one to the other. So I think he's trying to temper some of the enthusiasm and some of the hype, frankly, about the possibility of building a mind, about a conscious computer, while acknowledging that there are specific tasks at which computers have gotten a lot better in recent years. Again, this feels really resonant with the mission of our book uh, and with with the intervention we're trying to make into tech critique. I think that uh, sometimes, and you know, there are very good structural reasons why it's very difficult for anyone but the best journalists to find out what's really happening inside technology companies, and it's hard even for them. Uh, but I think sometimes, sort of, scholars and critics and the most prominent critics of these of tech companies tend to take at face values their claim about what they can do, as Ben said. And so we have this imagination in which what's dangerous about, oh, say, a company like Palantir is that somehow Alexander Karp and Peter Thiel are going to know every single thing about you, Doug, and get it, you know, their their super brain is going to reach into your private life and know everything. Uh, I assume they already know. So. <laughs> But what I was going to say is that I think, or, you know, I think to take the example of The Social Dilemma, this film that's on Netflix right now, there's this idea, which I haven't actually watched, but I know other work, the work of people involved in it. There's this idea that the problem with these technologies is that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's super brain is going to con completely mind control us all. Whereas actually a lot of what Facebook uses is like 1950s advertising categories. It's not that impressive that Facebook knows I'm a leftist woman between 25 and 35 or whatever. What's more interesting and also more important uh, is to understand and more dangerous is how these imperfect, how the imperfect systems interface with existing institutions and forms of power and inequality. And often it's the ways they don't work. Uh, you know, famously, vision recognition algorithms taken up by police that don't work very well, uh, that then can cause all kinds of harm. Okay, a couple of the interviewees, the, the AI guy and the, the Google guy in particular, um, give us an insight into the, the worldview, the politics of Silicon Valley. Um, I think it's tempting to think they're all a bunch of Peter Thiel-style libertarians, but they're not, really. Um, so what is the, the worldview, the politics uh, that's uh, pervasive in that world? Well, I'd say the first distinction I would make when we approach the politics of the industry is, is between the leadership class and the rank and file. And I think that's an important distinction to make because sometimes in mainstream media, Silicon Valley speaks as a whole. And, and what we're actually hearing when Silicon Valley speaks as a whole are the voices of the executives and the investors. The tech industry, like any industry, there are very serious structural divisions uh, between the rank and file and the leadership class. I think traditionally the leadership class has been a mix of kind of liberal libertarianism, which Mora can speak to more specifically. But it's also true that there has been a kind of emerging uh, reactionary strain of thought within the leadership class. Peter Thiel is obviously a kind of embodiment of this, but a number of other figures have emerged to express sympathy with many of these views. And in my view, that development, that kind of more tech right development within the leadership class is in part a reaction to some of the rank and file collective action campaigns that have emerged over the past few years and which signal the emergence of, of kind of more of a, a tech left 
which, uh, which has had glimmers of existence before, but has really kind of cohered and consolidated since 2016. And then finally, um, we're recording this in the day that uh, Trump's Justice Department is suing Google. The tech industry is experiencing a kind of public scrutiny and hostility that it really I don't think it experienced until the last few years. What is causing this and what do you suppose it means for the industry? Yeah, that's a, that's a great and big and difficult question, Doug. There, there's a kind of a debate over when does the tech lash begin? Uh, the kind of where's the prehistory? When does the proper history start? There's clearly a new conversation about the industry that emerges in the aftermath of the 2016 election. I'd say initially it has a lot to do with the question of Russian influence operations, the question of fake news, broadly with the question of social media and its impact on the election result. But even if that is maybe the starting point, it starts to go into a lot of places. And I think the tech lash has, has kind of become quite complex. We're now having conversations about gig workers. There's legislation around that in California. We're talking about social media. We're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about algorithmic racism. You know, it's a pretty big conversation. It's also politically quite varied. I mean, you mentioned the Justice Department and, you know, there are are now these prominent figures on the right who are making these antitrust cases against Google. You know, the right is primarily concerned with what they perceive to be the anti-conservative bias of the social media platforms, which I think we could place within a long history of their working the refs strategy, which seems to be paying off quite handsomely with a company like Facebook, where Facebook appears to be you know, bending over backwards to, uh, to accommodate right-wing voices and to amplify them on, on their platform. On the other hand, there are kind of liberal variants of antitrust, which have, uh, I'd say, taken root within a lot of quarters of the Democratic Party, which are kind of trying to revive this Brandeisian uh, view of anti-monopoly. So it's, it's a big and complex picture. I would say briefly, what does it mean for the future of the industry? It means that they're not kids anymore. They're not adolescents anymore. They're the GM. They're the ExxonMobil. You know, they can't play the underdog game anymore. And, and they haven't actually been playing it uh, really for a while now. That has an impact, to bring it back to the rank and file, on how people understand their work and what they do. It's harder now for the average white-collar Google employee to see themselves as part of an underdog organization, part of an organization that is committed to social transformation rather than capital accumulation. There's been a process of development and disillusionment that's taken place. And I would add, finally, that that can have productive political consequences because that disillusionment can, in fact, feed a process of radicalization that turns these individuals to things like collective action, to things like left-wing politics. It doesn't have to, but there is an opportunity there. And Moira, do you want to have the last word? Yeah, there's so well, there's so much I'd love to say about that, but um, and I think we could date the tech lash in many ways. You know, if 2008, the election of Obama as the internet president, as Arianna Huffington called him, uh, was sort of the arrival of one internet president. Trump in 2016 marked like a very different internet president uh, who came. And I think in between, we could look at the Snowden revelations and Gamergate and sort of these turning points uh, where public perception of tech shifted. But the thing I wanted to be sure to add uh, was just, it'll be quite interesting to watch what kinds of tech companies are targeted because, you know, we talk about the tech industry, but now as Ben and I say, tech is a layer of every industry and there are many very different kinds of tech companies. Uh, and for instance, Palantir and Amazon have entirely different business models. Two companies I've been working on studying recently have entirely different business models, of course, than Google. They're not attention-driven companies. As a result, they don't need to collect user data in the same ways, although they collect other data uh, as, as Google does. Uh, and I think that Google has become a particular, I don't want to say scapegoat because they're a very powerful uh, company and they've done some things worthy of criticism, but they've become a focal point, I think, of actors on the left and the right uh, for, for various reasons. And it'll just be important to pay attention to how other companies that aren't necessarily selling attention, that have other business models and, and organizational practices fair. Uh, because now tech, there are many tech companies and tech is a layer of basically every, basically every company and every kind of work. Uh, yeah, so Google almost seems like an emissary from this earlier, more optimistic uh, Obama 2000s era. 
That was Maura Weigel, co-editor along with Ben Tarnoff, who we've also been hearing from, of Voices from the Valley, tech workers talk about what they do and how they do it, published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of David Bowie's TVC15. I learned from Voices of the Valley that Google calls his contingent workforce TVCs for temps, vendors, and contractors. I suspect some wit might have been alluding to the Bowie song, but even if not, the abbreviation made me think of it. Next, Obama. My next guest, Paul Street, is out with his third book in the guy, this one focusing on his depressing post-presidency. In the closing days of his campaign, the Biden forces are looking to 44 to work his own magic. To street me, and I'm sure many others, the magic, if it ever was there, has gotten very old. For example, the other day, Obama gave a speech on behalf of Biden and Harris. Among other things, he said, should they win, and I quote, you might be able to have a Thanksgiving dinner without having an argument. Obama lives in a fantasy world of politics without conflict, where we can all be reasonable and let technocrats, who of course would never annoy Wall Street, run the show. The proper role for the rest of us is just to shut up and vote. Here's Paul Street with more. Barack Obama is really, uh, you know, like a saint in uh, Democratic minds. In your book, he's really not a candidate for canonization, is he? No, not in my case. I, I had Obama's number, like a lot of us in Chicago on the left did early on. We knew the Obama phenomena that was the Chicago experience and the Illinois experience, Springfield and Chicago, before it hit the nation. And um, I was trying to warn uh, liberal and progressive America in Iowa and uh, beyond that from the beginning and didn't have a lot of luck. Yeah, the ex-presidency is interesting. You know, Jimmy Carter wasn't a great president, but he's been a pretty good ex-president. There's been a great deal of continuity, actually, between Obama as president and Obama as ex, right? Oh, this is pretty much the the, the ex-president Obama, uh, really uh, being incredibly polite, being very careful in his word choices, not calling Trump by name. Uh, he described Trump privately to Tim Kaine as a fascist. I mean, you know, he could, uh, whatever exactly he meant by that word in October of 2016, he's never said anything like that as Trump came in. In fact, the, the minute Trump was elected, the day after Obama went out into the Rose Garden and gave a speech about how uh, we've all got to rally behind this guy because we're all Americans first. You know, typical Obama rhetoric, the Obama rhetoric of the keynote address that catapulted him in 2004. We're all Americans first. There's not a red America or in a blue state America. There's not a black America and a white America. And, you know, I'm handing off the baton uh, to my successor in hopes that we will continue to uh, generate a more perfect union. And he sort of stayed like that. We'll see what he says now. He's being unleashed uh, in Philadelphia, they say, to really go after Trump. Now we'll... This is supposed to be Sleepy Joe's weapon in the, the last two weeks of the campaign. Kind of late, you know. Uh, Obama heats up. And one thing that folks will see in my book is that he does heat up a little bit strictly in accord with the election cycle. That's one of the interesting things I found, that insofar as he will call Trump's and mention Trump by name or, or get feisty at all, it's sort of as you got closer to the 2018 midterms and now that we're in the full-on final days, final weeks of the election cycle, expect to hear a little more militant kind of sounding language from Obama. If there's anything that sums up uh, the Obama post-presidency for me in one image, it's that uh, picture of him play fighting with uh, Richard Branson on Branson's yacht. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. What do you, what do you suppose they were talking about there? <laughs> 
it's not just that he's on the mansion with them, that they're engaged in this junior high puffery and, and pretending to fight each other. It's very juvenile, which implies a kind of intimacy and friendship. You know, at that time, Branson, I suppose he still is, was engaged in uh, attempts to privatize the British, uh, you know, national health care system. So maybe they were, when they when they were through with kite surfing and, and, and playing around on the yacht, Maybe they were discussing strategies for the neoliberal uh, breakup of the uh, British healthcare system, uh, maybe somewhat on the model of uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, uh, which was just a signal accomplishment uh, of of the Obama presidency that uh, because it has Obama's name on it, Trump is constantly trying to destroy. And of course, if you listen to Trump, you'd think it was some sort of communist socialization of medicine and when it was no such thing at all as you know very well it was uh, uh, a type of reform that that did expand access to health care for millions of americans we shouldn't forget that but that left total abject corporate for-profit private control of the of the health care system fully intact you quote a, a writer for the atlantic saying uh, like president obama former president obama wants to remain above the political fray which is a preposterous thing for you know, somebody who's been president and deeply involved in politics for most of his life <laughs> what does this say about obama's view of politics one of the things that hooked me on this book, which is sort of kind of an assigned topic, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do it first because, you know, I kind of figured I had enough publications with Obama's name in the title. And one of the things that hooked me into it was the historical curiosity of what the hell uh, is an ex-president, how is an ex-president supposed to behave when the president who preceded him uh, doesn't doesn't respect any known civilized presidential ruling class norms on numerous levels, including constantly trashing his predecessor, Obama. And Obama has sort of continued to um, stay in that conventional normative role of the ex-presidents who don't say very much. You know, he's, he's continued to honor that role when his successor doesn't doesn't honor the presidential a norm regarding his their successors, and I, I I'm not sure what it says about his politics. It's it, it's consistent with his uh, deeply conservative nature and his long-standing respect for um, institutions. That conservatism is a matter both of temperament and politics, right? Larissa McFarquhar's uh, profile of him in The New Yorker 2007 brought that out, but a lot of people really don't take that fully on board in their evaluation of this guy. There's a deep temperamental and political conservatism about him. Yeah, there is. And, and you know, I, I have an, at the, in the final chapter of this book, I have an, uh, what, what I at least think is an interesting engagement with a historian who I think is a wonderful writer, David Garrow. And Garrow, you know, won the Pulitzer Prize for his sterling biography of Dr. King. And he's subsequently done, I think it came out last year, a literally 1,000 uh, plus page biography of Obama. And Garrow talks about the temperamental aspects. It's it's almost a psychohistorical approach in Carroll's book. It's you know, it's almost a Freudian approach. And and he cites at length Obama's uh, major significant other prior to Michelle, who which was Sheila Jagger, who was an anthropology student in Hyde Park at the University of Chicago. She teaches anthropology now at Oberlin College. And she talks a lot about Obama's distance, personal distance and his narcissism and his shallowness. There's a lot of emphasis on his, his, his lack of depth as a human being and his alleged uh, need to be loved. He, he, he avoids confrontation. I suppose that is part of Obama's makeup. One could do a psychohistory of Obama and his family of origin and be very consistent with that. But what I tend to emphasize uh, and have emphasized historically with Obama and do again in this book is also the, the, the minting, the socialization, the indoctrination. The uh, I take a more Gramscian approach, I guess. I think Obama came out of Columbia and then Harvard Law as a very eagerly and and fully indoctrinated corporate neoliberal who believed firmly in capitalist and imperial American ideology. That was the Obama that I remember breaking into politics in Chicago. Uh, If he wanted to be loved, maybe he ought to have been the progressive that he ran as in 2007 and 2008 instead of the corporate neoliberal who demobilized everybody and helped set America up for the Trump nightmare, right? But he didn't do that because of his uh, very specifically capitalist ideological socialization. 
the political and the personal come together when we you know, think of FDR's famous uh, um, comment about the hostility of the rich towards him. I welcome their hatred. Now, this is a guy who came out of the upper class and had the confidence to step on their toes somewhat. Obama came out of fairly modest background and was groomed by elites uh, to rise. And uh, he wants their love. I mean, there's a really stark personal and political contrast. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And he owed his ascendancy before he became a national phenomenon precisely to that class of people in Chicago. You mentioned this, but I want to develop the point. Um, how did Obama's presidency pave the way for Trump? Well, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'm pretty brutal with my chapter title on that. It's Barack von Obamdenberg, which is a direct analogy with Hindenburg, the predecessor of Hitler in Germany the third. He did it by rendering transparently inauthentic. The Clintons did this as well. He did this in, in the wake of an epic uh, financial collapse, a classic crisis of capitalism. He, he, he rendered very transparently and authentic the progressive and democratic pretenses of the Democratic Party, right? Hope and change and health care. And it's the economy, stupid. And he gets in there and he just uh, validates our thesis, the, the, the left's, the real left's thesis on Obama from the beginning, which was that this is just a manipulation of populism by elitism that is that is recurrently practiced by corporate captive Democrats. And you know, he got in there and became a um, object lesson in the nothingness, the, the inauthenticity of the popular opposition that the Democratic Party claims to engage in, right? Uh, and, and kicked single payer to the curb went forward with a doubling down on the bailout of the corporate elite with with barely a life draft for the working class and thereby helped demobilize the the, the notion that Trump rode into a into power on a wave of working class votes is statistically unsupported and false in fact his base is relatively affluent and somewhat petty bourgeois. It does tend to be not have college degrees, but that's not the same as being in the working class. It's not so much that Trump stole the working class from the Democrats. It's that Obama and before them, the Clintons and the Hillary Clinton, the dismal Hillary Clinton campaign of 2016 endorsed by Obama tended to demobilize the working class and the lower class and not just the white working class. It demobilized black voters who looked at this great symbolic victory of a black president in the land of cotton slavery and it garnered them essentially nothing or very little beyond the symbolic. And in key battleground cities, black turnout was very low. I'm speaking with Paul Street, author of Hollow Resistance, Obama, Trump, and the Politics of Appeasement, published by Counterpunch Books. Now, Obama has barely mentioned Trump's name uh, in the last uh, almost four years. And his concept of political opposition consists basically of what? Pay attention and vote. I mean, this is his conception of politics, right? You vote, right. And, and I mean, he even he went to Urbana in 2018 and told students there that the best way to protest is to vote. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, Barack, the best way to protest is to protest. And now we're in an election cycle where we might need to protest in order to have votes count. But yeah, it's, it, he's a high priest of electoralism. Obama, the one-time community organizer who decided that that didn't really work and decided to go completely into the electoral system, is constantly harping on the need to vote. I've got him doing that again and again in this book, which raises the interesting question not only of what do we do besides vote, but furthermore, then, okay, Obama, vote. Vote for who? And if you look at his endorsement lists that have come out in 2018 and again this year, conspicuously missing are precisely those Democrats uh, who are, uh, 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 imagine this, running in accord with majority progressive opinion for things like single-payer health insurance, which is now supported by seven in ten Americans. So, you know, the squad isn't on his endorsement lists. He says flattering things. He did it in both cycles about Bernie, who was a single-payer guy, a, a, a Green New Deal guy. My God, do we need a Green New Deal? It's like an existential requirement as well as a good job provider if it were ever implemented. He says, has nice things about Bernie and then functions behind the scenes in uh, no uncertain terms to uh, undermine Sanders. And he did that quite uh, viciously, if elegantly, in this last cycle. You know, he's largely stayed out of politics for the last four years, except for that intervention, right? He did his best to uh, marginalize, but very quietly, the Sanders campaign. 
Yeah, he schooled a lot of the corporate neoliberal candidates at, you know, everyone had to make the trek to Obama's office in Washington, D.C. and get his lecture on how to be a good neoliberal and and no doubt talking points on how to beat up on Bernie uh, in the debates and uh, played a very key role in uh, signaling Klobuchar and Buttigieg to uh, align with Clyburn and to shut down the Sanders campaign and to, to, to bring all, and Bloomberg, and to bring all the corporate neoliberals together under the tent of um, Joe Cornpop Biden, who is surely one of the most right-wing and somewhat blundering candidates to ever insult uh, the progressive base of the Democratic Party. And, you know, Obama played a really key role in that. He interfaced with Sanders to convince him to step down. I don't know how much convincing really had to be done about that. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's not a pretty story. And it's not just him. It's his circle around him and the axelrods and his operatives. They're a pretty uh, slick group of machinators behind the scenes. I was going to ask you about his legacy, but this makes me want to ask the question about the library first. The library is not being run by the National Archives, the first presidential library not to be run by the National Archives. Like, what's this, Who's going to run his library and what's going to be in it? Funny you asked me that because that really pisses me off because uh, uh, I'm a historian. That's my doctorate. And, and I love archivists. And, uh, and you know, if, if you're a historian, you spend time uh, filling out little slips and, and you'd like to establish relationships with these wonderful people who bring you these primary sources that you know are the the uh, that are just so essential to recovering like what really happened and yeah there's no archivists at the, it's all digital They're, this is the first presidential library that won't hire archivists uh, uh, and that's right it's it's what it's being run by a foundation or something it's 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 not even it's not a government program how how wonderfully neoliberal is that right the first fully uh, private sector or neo you know private public partnership national archives it doesn't hire archivists and it's just disgusting and on top of which by the way the uh, the library is an agent of gentrification uh, in Woodlawn and uh, the neighborhood right under Hyde Park in the south side of Chicago so community activists are off at it and environmentalists are off at the Obama Presidential Library because it tears up a bunch of cherished uh, green space. You know, we need green space in cities. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a funny part of this book. And then finally, um, his his legacy. Is there one? Is it a bad legacy? Or has he left no footprints behind him? What, what are we going to think about Obama going forward? Well, I suspect his legacy is going to depend heavily on the outcome of this election. I, uh, his legacy will be uh, much safer if they can get Biden in, which, uh, you know, I, I suspect they can. If they can't, if his legacy is really in trouble, it's going to look really bad. This book has relevance uh, even if, if uh, Biden gets through. But the, the legacy is a legacy of, um, of surrender. Obama's career has been an almost perfect epitome of Sheldon Wolin's description, the late Princeton political scientist. It's almost a perfect epitome of Wolin's description of the Democratic Party under corporate uh, captivity as the inauthentic opposition party. There's this great passage in Wolin's Democracy Incorporated. That was the title of his book, where he says, if the Democrats manage to win an election and, and, and slip a president in there, uh, he or she will uh, uh, prove that there really is no significant anti-corporate, anti-imperialist people's party in, in the American two-party system, and they will cave and, and give the corporate elite pretty much everything they want. And as I recall Wolin saying, the rightward, the far rightward drift of American society will, will continue and, and will deepen. And that was always one of my warnings from early on about Obama is that he would hatch something, he would demobilize the Democratic base and and open the door for and give rise to something even worse than George W. Bush. Uh, That happened. He is at risk of this being his lifelong legacy. He's been living up to this legacy as an ex-president. And, you know, insofar as many of us are looking to Biden as a relief from Trump, he may actually uh, perpetuate uh, that model. I'm rather concerned about that. I do think Trump and Trumpism are malignant tumors that have to be cut out. It's just horrifying what's happening in this country right now. And to say that is not to endorse the conditions that give rise to cancer. It is not to, it is not to become a fan of or to endorse the inauthentic opposition Democrats. But I, I, I just fear that nothing decent could possibly happen 
under a second Trump term. And in effect, I, I have the sense that a second Trump term will be much more like the real F word, the real fascist, proto, neo, quasi, whatever you want to call it. Trump term two will make Trump term one uh, look mild by comparison. This is a nightmare. It's, it's ironic that Obama's popularity is burnished by this Trumpenstein that he himself did so much to help create. So it's got to go. But, but the movement to get rid of Trump has to get in the streets and stay in the streets and push Biden mercilessly if it wants to get anything remotely decent. For example, the expansion of the court, which I think is going to be necessary. I think that's absolutely essential. We can't be captive to a far right wing Christian fascist Supreme Court for the next and federal bench in general for the next 30 years. So Biden could well hatch something worse. I mean, it's hard to imagine people feeling nostalgic for the Trump years, but, but it was hard to imagine people feeling nostalgic for George W. Bush. Uh, that actually could happen. Imagine somebody with Trump's politics who actually cared about governing and was competent at it. Well, you see, someone who's got the white, the, the base isn't going away. This 44% of people who continue to support Trump no matter what, they continue to exist. The rightward absurd drift of our electoral system under the hegemony of the, uh, of the U.S. Constitution continues to exist. And my God, we could get someone in there with the same ability to tap that ugly base and that white nationalism. Maybe we want to call it neo-fascism. Maybe we don't. I really, at this point, I don't care. Authoritarianism and white nationalism are bad enough. Someone who actually has that base, knows how to rally that base, and actually also can read a white paper for more than three sentences without their, without starting to fall asleep and become bored with a brain. Yeah, like Tom Cotton, for example. And the, the guy from Missouri is a graduate of Yale Law, for God's sake. The guy that replaced Claire McCaskill, that senator. I think Tom Cotton is Harvard Law. I think the guy, I, I can't remember his name, the Missouri senator is Yale Law. And there's others out there that uh, could end up being much more competent and therefore much more dangerous, much less comic. People who can actually understand doctrine instead of just sort of be manipulated by doctrine. Uh, that's an eventuality after Biden that I'm very concerned about. That was Paul Street, author of Hollow Resistance, Obama, Trump, and the Politics of Appeasement, published by Counterpunch Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of what happened to Delilah from the Mekon's latest album, released in June, Exquisite. Till next week, bye. Yes, my friend, you get a red sky. Wet, dead, bubble,